Um, good afternoon. I just want to correct one rumour before it starts going round. I, I wasn't actually fired. I, <laughs> I, have changed, I have changed jobs after uh, three and a half years as Bureau Chief in, for the UK and Ireland. Um, a fairly eventful, sometimes rumour-driven, sometimes rumour-chasing three years. Uh, and now I'm a writer and editor of Company News. I'll give you a little rundown of what I'm going to go through today. I'll probably talk for about half an hour and then open it up to some questions. I'm going to give you a little outline of who I am, just so that you know that I'm vaguely qualified to talk on this subject. Um, why I particularly wanted to talk on this element of financial journalism. Give you a little outline of what Reuters is and what we do. Um, and then talk about what I see as the three challenges um, in in reporting in rumour-hungry markets. The challenge of knowledge and expertise, the challenge of facts versus information, and the challenge of ethics and trustworthiness. I am then going to conclude and then we'll open for questions. So I am now a company news editor and lead writer in London, writing about uh, stocks, shares, companies in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Uh, I started in Reuters as a fast-track graduate trainee 11 years ago now. Uh, started writing about metals, about uh, which I knew absolutely nothing because I'm an English literature graduate. Not the first clue. Uh, we'll come on to talk uh, a little bit later about whether or not this is a good thing. Um, but I reported the metals and commodities markets for about six months. Um, I then went to Ireland for a one-month stint where um, the response of the guy I was replacing, I went into the bureau expecting to be the second person in a, in a two-person bureau, uh, wasn't told that the guy was going on parental leave, um, and I would be in charge of the bureau just as they were about to go into a spat with um, Europe about their budget. I knew nothing about economics. <laughs> I then went to South Africa, where I was for three years, and ran uh, our equities coverage there, including covering a bank run, um, which actually doesn't happen as often as you might think. So I'm one of the few people in Reuters that actually has covered a bank run. I moved to Ireland, where I was chief correspondent, uh, covered financial news there, but also uh, IRA disarmament deals um, and the Northern Bank raid, and moved back to London in 2008, where I have run the Bureau since then, and covered a variety of things, including the financial crisis, um, whilst trying to manage the merger of a newsroom at the same time, and, uh, and right up to the present day, the riots and the royal wedding this year. <coughs> so that's a little bit about me, why I chose this topic. Um, I think that the challenge of reporting financial stories at the moment is absolutely immense. It's a front-page story in a way that financial news wasn't uh, three years ago. I mean, now most people can know what it is if they can't say it. They, can, they know what quantitative easing is. I doubt very few people knew what it was three years ago. Um, and the pressure is immense because it is a key story, but also because we have this immediacy of information provision through internet and 24-hour news coupled with instant and 24-hour trading that is global, and that puts an enormous pressure on the journalists reporting financial news. So that's why I wanted to talk about... I'm not going to talk in detail about 
the 24-hour news cycle itself. That's, that's not what I'm going to talk about. We might talk about it in discussions afterwards, but that will come into the discussion. A little bit quickly about Reuters. We have 3,000 editorial staff and journalists and photographers in 200 bureaus, and we're serving about 130 countries, mainly with a financial news bent, but obviously uh, all the news that's fit to print. Uh, on which more later. So let's start with our three challenges. I want to talk first about the challenge of knowledge and the challenge of expertise and whether our journalists, those journalists writing about financial news, are fit to do so. There was a lot of discussion um, after 2008 and much hand-wringing about whether or not journalists were in some way to blame, in fact, for the financial crisis or whether we had in some way contributed to it, either by not warning people about it or failing to report it accurately or in some cases being accused of overzealous reporting uh, in reporting the financial crisis. In fact, um, in the UK... A number of journalists were brought before a parliamentary committee to be asked directly whether they were responsible for the collapse of Northern Bank, to which their answer was obviously no. Um, but there were accusations around the tone and the accuracy of the reporting. Uh, former Observer newspaper editor Will Hutton said that prior to 2008, journalists were guilty of accepting what the business community told them in a way that wouldn't happen with other issues. He says there wasn't enough challenge, there wasn't enough robust interrogation of what these guys, as in the financial community, were saying or doing. On the other hand, others dismissed the idea that journalists failed to predict or foresee or warn about the financial crisis. Bloomberg News London Bureau Chief said at a European Journalism Centre seminar on the role of the media in the financial crisis, he says, I argue that we did see the crisis coming. We commented on it, we pointed it out, and all of the signs were there that this was going to be big, bad and nasty. So I want to look at three elements of whether or not journalists failed or were inadequately prepared or are inadequately prepared to, to write about financial and business elements. Uh, the first accusation is around laziness, that, that journalists and financial journalists are too lazy. You know, we simply accept what we're told in press releases, we rewrite them in a way that suits our publication and we push them out. Um, that's something I think we can debate in questions. I'm not going to, to give an answer to that one. But the kind of interpretation of, of laziness is that journalists poorly paid, journalists can't, can't possibly compete against the huge machines of the business community and the PR agencies who are paying megabucks to tell us exactly what companies want to hear. And I think that's something that we need to look into uh, closely. I think that if you believe that a journalist's role is to seek the truth, then how much you're paid is slightly irrelevant to the question. Um, but certainly there is a machine against which journalists are fighting in the, in the sheer volume of information that is being presented to you on a daily basis from the business community. So there's the laziness question on the power of the PR. Then there's, then there's this element of this suggestion of collusion, that somehow the business, the business community is so like the journalistic community that 
the journalistic community somehow colluded because we were we were embedded uh, at the same European Journalism Centre conference in 2009 Dean Stockman of the Columbia Journalism Review said journalists have become embedded in elite structures and he was talking about in the elite culture of Wall Street but the same accusations have been levelled here um, a report by the Sutton Trust which is a, a body that researches education in the UK in 2009 found the majority of people in the top at the top of leading professions were educated in independent fee-paying schools which remain largely close to the rest of the population. So, 7 in 10 leading judges and barristers, the majority of partners at top law firms and leading journalists, more than 50%, came from those schools. So there's this collusion argument. I have to say that um, I think those people that choose to go into journalism rather than banking probably... They, they may have similar backgrounds, perhaps aren't all of the elite, but again, that's something that I think we need to look at. So there's laziness, there's collusion, then there's expertise, lack of proper knowledge. Are journalists who are writing about financial matters sufficiently educated to write about them? <coughs> now, you can argue that it is not necessarily the job of the journalist to be the expert in writing, your job is a craft in itself, and if you write, ask the right questions, that's simply sufficient. You don't need to be a politician to write about politics. You don't need to be a doctor to write about health matters. And you don't need to be an accountant to write about financial matters. And it's certainly true that there are a number of people now saying that, however, that, that journalists ought to have more of a grounding, that they ought to have some kind of economics, go beyond economics one-on-one and have some understanding of finance. Whether or not we get to a position where journalists will all take CFAs um, or come from or have come with economics degrees, I'm not sure. Certainly I think if um, journalism organised journalism organisations, media organisations have the money to fund CFAs, I don't know whether they'd be able to afford to keep them afterwards. Um, but again the knowledge that you need to bring to that subject is something that I think is being increasingly thought about in journalism degrees um, and amongst journalism organisations, media organisations. So we may see more of that in future, um, particularly, I think, data mining and the ability to use data and understand data is something that seems to be appearing more and more in, in taught journalism courses. But, of course... Uh, traditionally in the UK many journalists have not gone through a journalism school to get to their position and as I say myself I did an English literature degree Uh, I didn't have the first clue about finance when I first came to Reuters and that was something that was taught through courses and, and, and through trial and error and learning from my peers so laziness, collusion, expertise and finally perhaps there's a structural problem within journalism Um, and and this touches a little bit on the the 24 hour uh, problem Uh, there was a study recently by the Pew Research Centre's Project for Excellence in Journalism which found that a fifth of financial stories were triggered primarily by the initiative of journalists just one fifth but they found, interestingly, that the amount of enterprise that went into a story varied massively depending on the size of the topic. So big topics, less enterprise reporting. Smaller topics, lots of enterprise reporting. And that, again, and, and the, the, one of the 
conclusions that was taken from that was perhaps that's because journalists now are so deadline driven we have to have it now, we have to have it this minute but also perhaps that increasingly media bodies haven't invested as they had previously in the investigative part of the journalistic enterprise that uh, much more focus had been on delivering news now, facts now and I'm going to talk about that in a minute <laughs> rather than uh, longer term in-depth investigative reporting and that may explain why so few of these stories were in-depth and investigative so that's the challenge of knowledge and the challenge of expertise the second challenge that I wanted to talk about was the challenge of facts versus information and, and mentioned it in passing just just in that in the sense of the structure of journalism makes it quite difficult one of the major challenges that we have in Reuters but I think increasingly for most media outlets which have several media offerings so have an immediate internet offering have a newspaper may have twitter feeds is trying to balance the requirement to report facts with the requirements to provide information. So on the one hand, if we look at Reuters, one of our primary motivations is to to serve the market. So if a share price is moving rapidly, we need to tell people who may not be looking at that stock and may not have that stock up in front of them that it's moving. At the same time, we need to explain why that stock is moving and to, to do as much as we can to try and to try and give a rounded picture of what's happening in that company. How we deal with it at Reuters, from the Reuters, just give you a line from our Reuters handbook and then I'll give you a case study. Reuters aims to report the facts, not rumours. Clients rely on us to differentiate between fact and rumour and our reputation rests partly on that. There are, however, times when rumours affect financial markets and we have a duty to tell readers why a market is moving and to try to tack down the rumour to verify it or knock it down. I'm going to give you a good example of some of the challenges and the tensions, I think, that are inherent in this facts versus information pull. Uh, And it's the case of Societe Generale uh, um, from August this year. So in August this year, uh, on the 10th of August, SOCGen share price started moving quite sharply. Um, A share price move of of over 3% to something that would normally send alarm bells ringing for us. Gen share price for no apparent reason. There was no there was no statement out from the company, nothing out from the company, no news out. Started to move very rapidly, five percent, seven percent, ten percent. There was nothing out there. So simultaneously, we were calling both the trading floor to try and understand what might be moving the share price, and the company to try and understand what was going on and if there was something to it. Our first alert, if you like, our red headline. Um, was that the, the share price was moving very quickly afterwards followed by an alert saying traders say this is because there is a rumour in the market that um, there's a French credit rating downgrade coming so a sovereign downgrade coming we called the ratings agencies that, that nothing from the rating agencies no comment but equally no movement in other prices that would have indicated a sovereign downgrade was coming so you would have expect bonds um, to move, you would have expected other share, other prices to move, but it wasn't. It was Sockgen's share price was moving. Uh, then, the, then a rumour started in the market that actually it was Sockgen itself. There was a problem with Sockgen itself. Still, no comment from the company. Um, so we sent out an alert saying, "Trader talk that there is um, there is a problem with Sockgen." Now, of course, 
there is a tension here because on the one hand we don't know that that's true that's what is moving the share price it is a fact that trader talk trader rumour is moving the share price we, don't, we have no knowledge that this is actually the case so all we can report is the, the limited amount we know finally at 8 o'clock in the evening so for at least five hours, this this sort of toing and froing went on. Sotchain came out with a statement that it was all, you know, there was no foundation to any of this. They couldn't see why, and they were going to ask uh, the French regulator to look into why these rumours were starting. But we spent pretty much the best part of the trading day trying to balance the need to tell people what was happening and explain this. At one point, their share price went over 20% fell over 20%, so it lost nearly a quarter of its value in the space of a a trading day. And we were desperately trying to balance the need to tell people that that was happening with the need to find out why that was happening, and I think that's an immense challenge for us. But there was an article, maybe. There was was an article, it was two days before. There was an article in the Daily Mail, and the Daily Mail had to say, yes. They had to apologise. Yes, they had to apologise, but... I'll come on to that. I'll come on to that in my last part, which is about sourcing, which is about which is around sourcing and who you, how you trust people and how and and the problems that we have now, which is were that happening fifty years ago, you would have had the time to be able to find out what was going on and limit the sort of damage that that was doing. Whereas now, it, people seize on anything. Markets need anything to trade on. They need excuses to trade. So they will seize on almost anything and increasingly from almost any source. So that one of the interesting things, and we'll come on to that when I talk about sourcing, is that there are hierarchies of source, but increasingly people are grabbing tiny bits of information from wherever they can and using that as an excuse to trade. And that can spiral incredibly quickly in the current environment. So that brings me on really to my final point, which is around the challenge of trustworthiness. Who who can you trust? Who can we trust? Who will give us uh, the information? And um, and what influence do those people have? Um, At Reuters, we have quite strict policies on sourcing, but we do use unnamed sources. We will never use unsourced stories. So you will never see on Reuters... It is understood that, or we understand that, or any of those kind of variations. Um, I'm not looking at James because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not looking at James because the BBC does, but we don't. We don't. That, that's our policy. But we do use unnamed quotes. So um, though a named quote would trump an unnamed quote, an, a named quote that has knowledge of the, what's going on, not a, not a named quote from the lady down the street that you happen to meet, but a, a, a named quote would always trump <coughs> someone who had information, but we do use um, unnamed sources, and so do our competitors. Um, so so that many people will say it is understood that, we have learnt that, and, and not give any indication of what, who that source is or how that source has come by that information. But because it is a, re- a respected um, and reputable media outlet that is giving you that information, the inclination would be to take that information. So if one of our esteemed competitors was reporting something as a fact, uh, in many cases we would see it as our duty, because that is a story that is out there, to pick that up and, and um, pass on that information, although we would say... You know, you know, 
we haven't had that confirmed for ourselves or, or something of that ilk. The challenge of pickups has what we call so taking stories from other media outlets, I think, has become immense in, in recent years because we have access to all of that information. Often it would be very hard formally to find something um, in one of your competitors' uh, papers or websites, but now everything is almost instantaneously a- accessible, so it is all out there. Um, and as John said in his opening remarks, news outlets of all sorts of shapes and sizes, highly respected newspapers, highly respected news agencies, um, to the very smallest Twitter feeds um, and blogs have been absolutely rife with stories that have moved markets quite significantly, but turned out not to be true. And nowhere is that, um, I think, more in evidence than the last few weeks in, in Greece. Uh, we had, I, I spoke to some of my colleagues in Reuters uh, in the, yesterday about some of the things that, some of the goings on that they've experienced in the past two weeks, and, and I got some sort of slightly weary sounding replies because it is a huge challenge for us, and we spend a lot of time trying to chase down rumours that are moving markets. Uh, there was one example given of a false report that China was buying Greek bonds that was carried in quite a lot um, of media competitors, um, which we had to shoot down. Um, one of our uh, senior editors says it's been a huge headache, and last week um, encapsulated it. He gives the example of Papandreou calling the shock referendum in Greece, which infuriated his European partners, and that, he says spurred a rumour mill that went into overdrive. Um, Other media uh, reported, uh, very uh, well-respected media outlets reported that Papandreou had quit, that he'd lost his parliamentary majority, um, and none of that proves to be true, but all of it was moving markets. Um, In that case, um, and it's not always the case, we actually didn't pick up those stories because we knew, or we felt we were fairly certain that those were not true. But no media outlet can be everywhere. We don't all have, we don't necessarily all have, all of the time, the best sources. So in that case, um, we were fairly certain that we knew exactly what was going on uh, with Papandreou, and so we didn't pick it up. But if it was a remote outpost of somewhere where we didn't have a reporter or we, weren't, or we didn't have as good sources as one of our competitors, perhaps we might have picked that up because we wouldn't have been as strongly... Uh, placed to, to shoot it down. There was also a false report um, on a UK website recently about a Franco-German Eurozone deal which moved markets in US hours and that's another problem with this 24-hour news cycle is often these things will emerge and the information will be seized on in a different part of the world amongst people who don't have as much knowledge about how much emphasis to place on that report and, and that will move markets as well and makes it much more difficult for us to shoot down. Um, very quickly, I just wanted to talk about one other thing which is a, is a big challenge for us around, around rumours, and that's hoaxes. Hoaxes have become immensely sophisticated uh, in, in recent years. Um, and that, again, is a major challenge for us, particularly in financial markets, because people have realised that they can use fairly sophisticated hoaxes in the hope of damaging a share price, moving a share price, uh, and that's something that we need to be increasingly vigilant about. Not just so that relates back to the you know who who can you trust, who do you trust? Um, 
one of my colleagues in Canada gives a great example about the Copenhagen climate talks. I don't know if you know the story, but during the climate talks, a press release came purporting to be from the uh, Canadian um, Environment Ministry saying, we have just agreed massive reductions um, in, um, in carbon emissions. Um, and it was a very formal-looking email, had all the right headings. And the only reason we were suspicious about it was because it was such an enormous reversal of Canadian policy. So while, while this colleague of, of mine in Canada was checking this out, another official-looking email came, purportedly from the Ugandan delegation in Copenhagen, saying, congratulating Canada on its position, <laughs> accompanied by a video which purported to show a Ugandan delegate standing in front of the climate change talk flag congratulating Canada, all of which looked terribly official, none of it true. Uh, we knew this because finally we got hold of the Canadian ministries who said, no, it's a, it's a load of rubbish. But it incredibly sophisticated to the point where hoaxes are now have gone to the trouble of even arranging press conferences, hoax, hoax press conferences in the US to try and convince people that uh, one or other oil company or, or, um, or what have you is... It's had a massive change of policy or doing something new with its tax. Uh, it, it tends frequently to be um, large corporations often involved in something like um, mining or oil and gas. And that makes it incredibly... That, the sophistication of people in, in wanting to dupe markets and reporters has become an increasing challenge. So that's a sort of zoom through what I see as some of the key challenges. Obviously at the back of all of that sits um, the, the sort of nagging issue that, that really I don't think is something that we can, we can tackle. Those, these are things I think we can tackle that is the nagging issue of, of, a, of a fast news cycle, of a now news cycle, a 24-hour trading environment. That's not something necessarily I think we can tackle, but these are things I think that we can probably find ways to get round. So the three challenges in conclusion. The first is knowledge and expertise. Um, that this could be improved not necessarily by employing people who are all PhDs, uh, maths PhDs and economic PhDs, but just having people who have some kind of technical now, who understand how to read uh, balance sheets, who understand how to look at profit and loss counts. Um, but also <coughs> going back to the fundamental pr principles of journalism, asking questions asking questions. Then there's the challenge of facts versus information and this is really, I think, absolutely key in the current environment. Digging deep and balancing the reporting of bare facts, which we need, with the investigative element, the digging deep. Um, and then finally there's this element of trustworthiness, a real, a real desire and drive to question relentlessly our sources, but not only our own sources, but also those of our colleagues and peers and to question even the most respected news organisations, Reuters included, um, if, if you are not convinced about some of the information that is coming out um, and having a really robust, uh, where, as wherever possible, a really robust etiquette around sourcing your information so people know as far as possible that this is actually something that is true and trustworthy, not something that you heard on the street or you picked up and gossip in the kitchen. Uh, and that is my conclusion around the challenges that we have in feeding the financial beast and reporting it accurately.